0: The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out.
1: The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Remarkable People Podcast, episode 51 the Cherie Burden story. Ladies and gentlemen, this is another one of those packed episodes where the theme and what's described is definitely delivered, but there's so much more. As you'll see in this episode, Cherie is not only a speaker and a businesswoman and an author and former Mrs. Utah and so much more. But she has a life where she escaped the cult of Mormonism. She saw her sister take her own life. And she had the privilege of not only having her natural born children, but then an incredibly remarkable story of how God brought two more beautiful children in her life through adoption. So this episode goes deep and wide. It gets better and better as it goes on. And like, you know, all of our episodes, we all agree to disagree in some areas. We don't all think the same and we're all developing spiritually in our growth every day in our journey of life. So while Sheree and I may not agree on everything, the fundamentals and what we can learn from each other is paramount and it really can help one another not only come to know god better but to grow and to help and encourage one another along the way. So as you listen to this episode, Cherie has an amazing life and story, but we really focused in a lot of the hardships. So you can call her and write her and connect with her about all the positive stuff. But in this episode, like I said, we talked about the loss of loved ones growing up in an oppressive cult. We talked about, you know, hardships of all sorts, but then she shared the steps of how she got out of it, how she's still growing and how you can too. So I'm David Pasqualone. This is the Remarkable People Podcast. Welcome to the Cherie Burton story. See you at the end again. Hey Cherie, thanks for being here today. How are you? I'm great, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime, anytime. As we discussed before this show, Welcome to the Remarkable People podcast. We have a global community in over 76 countries, listeners all across North America, and we are excited to hear your story. The listeners aren't here for me, they're here for Mm -hmm. you. So if you will, start off in childhood. Where'd you grow up? What was your upbringing? How did your life begin?
0: Wow, that's such a loaded question. Well, (laughs) (laughs) it is, right? So. I am the second oldest of seven children, and my, I have a sister a year older, a sister two years younger, and then brother, a sister, brother, brother, sister, and then the seventh child in our family, which will lend itself to my kind of life theme that emerges, is actually my biological cousin. His mother committed suicide when he was three years old, my dad's sister, and in her suicide letter, she asked my parents to raise him. So I had already left home for college and everything when my parents adopted him. But yeah, there are f- four girls and three boys in my family of origin. And another interesting fa- fun fact, I-, I see this in jest, it's not fun, but it's unusual. Of the seven children that my parents raised, again, six of which were their biological children and the seventh being my dad's sister's child they adopted. Of those seven, all of them at one time, except myself and one other sibling were diagnosed bipolar at one time or another. And you may or may not be familiar. A lot of your listeners probably are, but bipolar is a really difficult disease to treat. And one of the markers of bipolar disorder is they tend to be high creatives in some way. Like they tend to have some kind of an artistic or creative gift that is quite pronounced. And so sometimes when they go into their creative state, they can go into more of a manic state where they kind of go down a tunnel and they just get so focused and obsessed on the creation, which is a healthy thing. But where it goes unhealthy is sometimes the body can't keep up with the soul. Because when we're in our soul zone, we are in our creative zone and we lose track of the self-care a lot of times. So with someone who has this tendency, they can lose sleep. They can have states of excitability where they just talk, 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 or don't shut down. And sometimes that can lend itself to more destructive behavior only because they're not getting adequate self-care. They're not getting adequate rest, sleep. Nutrition, et cetera, because they just get so hyper focused on their creativity or um, an idea or a project. So, uh, my two sisters that I was sort of sandwiched in between growing up, one a year older, one two years younger, you know, one sister was like a musical genius. My sister, two years younger, she had, she was born with the gift of perfect pitch, which is a very rare thing. She also, you know, had all the leads in the school musical. She had this beautiful alto voice. And she, one thing about her, her name's Shauna, she had open heart surgery when she was five years old. And then she had a full spinal fusion for scoliosis uh, where they opened up her entire spine and stuck rods on either side. I think she was 14 and I would have been 16 at that time.
1: Wow, that's so a lot. I was seven.
0: Yeah, so I was seven years old when she had her open heart surgery and I was 16 when she had her full spinal fusion. And I have to say, like looking back on my life, that was really traumatic for the whole family. I, I think I internalized a lot of and and formed some beliefs around people being sick and how drama can be created from that and how I wasn't ever going to be sick. I wasn't ever going to be where people had to take care of me. Because I could see the toll it was taking on my parents and the rest of the family. And of course, my sister, who has no control over that. But it's just really interesting because as I started to, as we started to go as a group, my sisters and I into, you know, junior high and high school, and then college, because we all kind of traveled together, we kind of all went to the same schools. I just, I would just take these little notes like, oh, my other sister was super artistic. Like she drew and she was into like fashion design and interior design. And my talents, I mean, I consider myself now a high creative, but not in the way of my sisters. I loved to write and I loved to journal and I love to read and research. That was kind of my, and it still is. <laughs> my mode of nerdiness in terms of creativity. And, but when you're in school, it's, or, you know, when you're growing up, that's not so cool. It's not as cool as like having the lead in the school musical or, you know, my other sister who was like best dressed and super popular and homecoming queen. I was just kind of that middle child that just kind of sat back and observed and like tried to be the balancer and the equalizer of all this creativity and all this drama and all this stuff you know, that my sisters were all about. Now, not to say that I was the perfect sister, because I was not, and I was not the perfect child. But very early on, I took the role of the equalizer, the balancer, the mediator, the middle child. And sometimes uh, middle children get a little lost in the mix. (laughs) And so sometimes they spend the rest of their life trying to either overachieve or overcompensate, or they just want to get seen. They just want to get noticed. And that's not conscious, but um, that's definitely what I fell into. I fell into kind of the high achiever, you know, get straight A's, go to college, graduate college, all that stuff. So,
1: And uh, when did you start noticing this about yourself? Was it while you were a child? Did you kind of pick up on it or was it after in reflection?
0: Both actually, I don't think I was. I ended up getting a psychology degree later, just because I um, wanted to solve this family pattern and understand behavior. My mother Is it was it a-
1: funny because almost everybody I know with a psychology, a psychology degree, does it to find their own path and explanations. Usually, yeah. I mean, yeah. most people either that yeah, or I they like cocaine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> gonna- <laughs> well, it's interesting. Yeah. What started? Yeah, I think I was probably about, I was really young when I decided I wasn't going to be, I was going to be very responsible, very serious about life, very, you know, looking back, it's not, the beliefs I formed were not healthy, because I didn't give myself that permission to just be free and have joy and feel and experience. It was like, nope, these are the responsibilities. Somebody's got to do it. These are things that can be done and i was just kind of watching things play out around me my mother bless her heart she's suffered with depression for many years and we lived in a small town in wyoming and so there wasn't a lot of awareness around mental health there wasn't a lot of support either where we lived and so she just had to internalize a lot of her struggle which was you know not on her it was just not it was not part of the consciousness. It was not part of, you know, she didn't get the right support and help she needed. My dad yeah, was and a back police in officer. That,
1: that generation's mentality towards mental illness was, why are you sad? Look mm-hmm. at all you have to live for. Suck it up and be happy.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And so my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a policeman. We didn't have a lot of money. One of the markers of my childhood was poverty. Which and in Wyoming, I mean it was relative, kind of everyone struggled and it was you know, not uncommon to for people to live in a trailer, which we did with five children though, not a double-wide trailer, a single-wide trailer. For there was a time we lived in a trailer, and you know, it was important for my mother to be there for her children. So she didn't work, she didn't go to college, which wasn't uncommon for her generation either you know, and I'm grateful for that grounding and and having her there. Also, I think that she also had this desire to want to do more. It just wasn't, you know, a space within kind of the religion I was raised in and also her situation and her desire to be a mom. I think today there are more opportunities for women to explore entrepreneuring or, you know, kind of craft their own purpose and and create income that way. If that's their desire, my mother, as I look back, she was doing that, you know, she was baking bread and selling it. She was sewing for people. She was, there's a time we did a paper route. I remember one of the most pronounced memories I have of my mother kind of trying to make it work and do what she could was when I was in fifth grade, my mom, after like, after in the evening, like around seven or 8 PM, when the high school closed down for whatever, my mother took myself and my older sister and we went and cleaned bathrooms at the high school. And I remember just, there was, and I can still see the bathroom and I can still see looking over at my mother and how beautiful she is. And I was like, this is not her birthright. What is, what are we doing? Like, and I just somehow just made this mental note to myself that I was going to create wealth when I got older as a woman. And I was like, I don't care about the guy I marry or whatever, because that's the programming that I got too, is that you just get married and start having kids. And then you stay home with your kids and your husband makes the money. But I just had this like something rising up in me, like, no, that I, I won't be cleaning bathrooms with my kids. Like I, <laughs> I, I want more. And this is again, not to like denigrate my mom at all. I think she was the most resourceful woman I've ever met, but she sort of paved the way and sort of with her beauty and her talents and the love that she had in her heart, she kind of opened that door. You could call it soft feminism, but she would always say things like, I can't wait to see what you guys create when you get older. It was never attached to us being a woman or, you know, my sisters and I was always just like, go, like, be you, <laughs> do your thing. And so she was uh, a great cheerleader for me growing up in that regard. It's just like, go be you, go do what you, you know, the world is yours kind of a thing.
1: And let me ask you another question. I mean, your mom sounds like a real Proverbs 31 woman, just going yeah. out and making the most of life, totally. a beautiful person not just physically, but beautiful inside. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned something real key that does shape us. We have listeners from all over the world, all different backgrounds. We have a, what you call a Christian worldview with the podcast. Sure. But what religious persuasion did you grow up in? Because you mentioned that, and that seems key in the leading of your home.
0: Yeah, so I was raised um, Mormon, or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I actually live in Utah here now. I and Mormon is considered a Christian religion because they worship Christ. with, With any system that you are part of, there's usually a healthy and an unhealthy aspect to it, right? So some of the more unhealthy aspects to Mormonism, it's very patriarchal. It's very, there's a hierarchical priesthood. And, you know, I don't want to dishonor anyone listening who is Mormon, other than to say that, there is an equal representation of the feminine in the space of this leadership. And I can see this across a lot of Christianity as well. Again, not trying to uh, offend anyone's structure or religion, but we're seeing a, a new way of egalitarian leadership where the man and the woman are co-equal in authority and voice and which was how it was, you know, Thousands of years ago, or thousands of years ago, when we can see the this is another thing we can talk about later. But it's from the time I was probably about twenty. I'm fifty two now, but when I was about late twenties, I started really studying ancient goddess culture, priestess culture, goddess temples. Basically, what was you know taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the feminine, which was Asherah, the queen of heaven or the goddess right next to God. And not not a lot of people in Christianity are even aware of this history as well as Mary Magdalene. I've done a massive amount of research on Mary Magdalene and not the Mary Magdalene that the world sees as this penitent prostitute but actually a woman who was alongside Christ in his ministry. So I am a woman of faith and I am a woman who believes in God and and understands that men and women have different but equal roles and that god doesn't love men more than women or the other way around it's just i think in in some of the history of christianity and also some of the history of again of mormonism it was you know kind of this top down men rule over women or men preside over women and women you know haven't really had equal representation or voice and they've been subjugated and silenced so in that regard, I started to notice, you know, like in Mormonism, there's this history of polygamy where the early prophets took more than one wife. And even as a young girl, I was like, that, that's not, you guys believe, like, you believe that's okay? Like, how is this okay to God? And how does this, you know, I, it just didn't land in me help in a healthy way. I, I was um, angry about it for a very long time. I so was in I
1: Utah to, during the late 90s, and they were still polygamy going on in some areas. I mean, it's just
0: in the ni- 1890s or 1990s.
1: No, me personally, I was in the late 1990s, and we were in some regions of Utah where they were still practicing oh, yeah. polygamy openly.
0: So that's actually not they're not they're not affiliated with the Mormon Church, but they are factions that broke away from the Mormon Church because. I think it's something like there's over 300 and some factions that broke out away from the traditional Mormon church and created their own splinter groups. And I think it's all because it started this dark practice of polygamy and they called, you know, and I'm talking about the original Mormon church, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, who instituted polygamy. It's It was, I don't believe it was ever of God, even though they said it was.
1: And that's a bold statement to
0: make, but it it was like, no, that that that's not a god I would want to worship. Who would have men go off and marry fourteen-year-old girls? And Brigham Young had over fifty wives. Joseph Smith had, it's estimated, over thirty or forty wives. And it's like, hmm, what does that say about women?
1: You know? Yeah, no, I'm on board with you completely. I'm not. There's people of all religions, but it's faith that saves us through Christ and. Mm -hmm. what the Mormon church was built on from everything I know. And I've spoken with leaders of the Mormon church. It's not built on truth. It's built on Joseph Smith, who is a career criminal and liar and fiction writer. And, you know, if someone's in the Mormon church. I'd urge urge them to kind of try to clear their mental slate and get with the Bible and compare what does the Bible really say to what the church is teaching you? Because, there's a drastic difference in the religion versus the relationship with Christ. So I, I would agree. Uh, the, I'm not trying to offend anybody. We love everybody. Well, but yeah, I just I, see a lot of people get in the Mormon faith and get really dragged through the coals for their life.
0: So when you're born into it, as I was, it wasn't until I was 49 years old, like three years ago, where I actually, because we're kind of told, don't look at the history, you know everything was anti mormon like don't look at the history that the, but when i actually did look at it not the anti mormon stuff but the actual history i recognized that there was a lot of distortion a lot of cover up a lot of lies and and if you say to a practicing mormon that joseph smith was a fraud they will run so fast the other direction because they can't it, it's just not there's no way i mean you're born into that and it's bred into you and he was the prophet of the restoration and He was speaking for God and he gave us these scriptures and these golden plates came and they were, you know, so to tell a practicing Mormon what, like what you said, you know, they would just like turn it off. Like they won't listen to you because it's so ingrained that this Joseph Smith figure was next to Christ, literally like he is the most amazing person to ever live except Christ. And so, I didn't even dare question, even though I've been studying other things and traveling all over the world and listening to people of all different cultures and faiths and denominations. I didn't even, in my psyche, I couldn't even go to a place to ask myself if it was actually true until I was 49 years old.
1: Yeah, I've heard that before, because that's why I ask our guests about their childhood. I mean, the fundamentals, the building blocks of what we believe happen in our childhood. And then we grow and adjust from there. And Mormonism is really tough, because I remember speaking as an evangelist in the the Utah area, and I learned very fast the definitions of words that we commonly use as quote-unquote Christians are different. Christ isn't the same Christ. Satan isn't the same Satan. Heaven, oh man, that's totally different. You have three levels of heaven. And I mean, hell is different. And that creates
0: this culture of perfection where grace isn't. And that's one thing that I have learned lately about some of the the programming that's very unhealthy that I got is Mm -hmm. that I had to do all these things to be worthy, to have the spirit, now, I do believe that there is a sense about being pure inside and receiving god and 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 like you said, faith, everything rides on faith. But Mormons kind of take it another level. Like you said, there's more heavens, there's higher and higher heavens, and it's all this hierarchy and all of these things you have to do. and and at the same time, they create kind of this elite, spiritual we're better because we have this more of this truth. And then there's this missionary effort to get people to try to accept this truth. And, and, and it just, it's just the cycle of, you know, God's favorite people. And at least that's my interpretation now.
1: No, Um, you're hundred percent. I mean, the Bible says the Bibles are, are, foundation i mean we got god and he left us the bible so we can know truth you know written over hundreds of years by people who didn't know each other spoke different languages when it came together there's no contradiction or flaw it's the same message genesis to revelation old testament new testament by faith and what you said earlier is completely true for by grace ye saved through faith it's the gift of god lest any man should boast there's nothing to do with works I mean, there's humility and there's serving God and there's other aspects Mm -hmm. to our Christian walk, but the relationship is just faith and a trust in Jesus. So that I can see you had the upbringing in your home. You know, your mom is struggling with a
0: woman, very devoted to Christ. And that's probably
1: part of her depression, right? The struggle, the inner struggle, you think, where she saw I could be more, but I'm held back. I mean, do you think that was part of it?
0: Well the other part of my story, I mean I I've actually made my career out of cracking the code on depression. So it, depression isn't caused by one thing. It's caused by multiple things and it's different for every person. My mother definitely had the genetic um predisposition for it. She she had relatives that committed suicide and she herself, you know, has struggled and my dad's you know sister committed suicide. So I've got it on both sides of my family. I feel like, well, first of all, to answer your question, depression is running rampant among among. I can't talk Mormon women, and I actually self published a book on depression in two thousand six, where I talked about this culture of perfectionism and how, you know, you know, Utah leads the nation in plastic surgery. Utah leads the nation in business entrepreneurship. Utah leads the nation in all these high achieving exterior structural kinds of th- of ways of being and doing things where it can be super super healthy you know to be put together and develop your life and be in personal development and achieve so to speak but when it goes south is when you don't find that inner connection so do i believe that the religion has created this unhealthy standard for women and men? Yes. And because we are taught within Mormonism, and I don't know, I would assume a lot of Christianity shares this as well, but traditionally women have only, you know, depending on how you interpret the Adam and Eve story, because there's many layers of, of truth and myth within it, that women were cursed and women were the fall of everything and that Women will be cursed through childbearing. And I don't personally espouse to that. I, I feel like there's more to women than just creating children and that uh, women can be a super wise a companion to what needs to happen to change on this earth because the way we've been doing it is not working. And that if we were to honor the gifts and voices of women more, we would see a better, healthier, more beautiful I kind of look at it as divine partnership. You know, you have the healthy masculine and the healthy feminine working together. And we have these forces within us. So when we're talking about depression, let's just say, if you feel silenced, if you feel like you can't collaborate and you have to stuff things down and swallow your wisdom and swallow your voice over and over and over again, you're going to get sick, whether you're a man or a woman. But again, this is traditionally women trying to, show up and, and be, and have collaboration in some of these spaces where they haven't been able to. So yeah, I mean, I have another sad story to tell about my life. When I was 36 and my sister that's two years younger was 34, she had, she took her life and she had five children. So her kids, this is a sister who was musical and was on stages and had had an open heart surgery and a full spinal fusion when she was younger. And, you know, we, we were pretty close. We lived in the same community. I was actually Mrs. Utah at this time. So there's miss there's pageants for married women, just like there are pageants for like, Miss. I was Mrs. Utah the year my sister took her life. And it was really ironic because I was Promoting a platform for empowering girls, teens, and mothers. And here, my own sister who had children ranging in age from 2 to 12 had taken her life basically in my backyard. I mean, she and I saw each other every day. And I think she was also a casualty of some of the things we just talked about.
1: hundred percent. Perfectionism. Yeah. All oh, that I'm really stuff. sorry to hear about this and thank you for sharing it. Because sadly, men and women all over the world are in life. We all live and there's chaos and evil all around us. And we're all suffering or victims, but we can't become a victim. You know what I mean? We all have things happen to us. But with your sister, with that happening and you're promoting this, how did that make you feel? Like what happened from there?
0: Well... It already had a psychology degree. I was a mother myself. I had three young ones. I had worked at an addiction recovery center that year. My sister herself was in an addiction recovery center five miles away from the one I worked at. I had worked at a psychiatric hospital as a group counselor. So I had, I'd already seen that how illness starts mentally and I was really wanting to break family patterns and then my sister takes her life. So it was just this like world explosion. And I can talk about it now cuz it's been 16 years, almost 17 years this year. You know, actually it's 16 years this year. I I I remember standing over her grave. You know, after the funeral and after you know we'd had, had some time to really process it cuz what she did is she overdosed she she took a drug that was used to manage her bipolar symptoms she took a 90 day supply at once so she, and she left a letter And in her letter, she basically said, I can be a better guardian angel to my kids than I can be a mother. And then she proceeded to give her husband permission to go get remarried and all, like she just knew she couldn't, she was on 12 medications to manage her bipolar. And her next step would have been committal to a state hospital and she couldn't conceive of that. And she, you know, she might've had to have another open heart surgery and her back pain, everything was just coming to a head. So I remember standing over her grave when, you know, kind of the, the more pronounced parts of her funeral and burial were over and she's just buried like 10 minutes from my house. And I promised that I would be her voice and I have kept that promise and I will continue to keep that promise because there were things that she didn't even know at the time were contributing to her getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And some of it were the medications and I've made a career out of holistic psychology and helping people to access more alternative forms of of mental health care. That was part of it. But the biggest part of it is just one thing I've gotten really, really passionate about, especially over the last five or six years is something called soul sovereignty, where you access the divine in you, and you connect to God in you, and you don't outsource your authority. You claim your own inner authority, claim your own power. And it's a very sacred process for each person. But I feel like with all of the things she had, you know, all the children and mental illness and physical pain that she was experiencing it was really hard for her. We found out, I mean, she... She was such a spiritual, loving, Christ like person. We found out through her journals that she felt so unworthy before God that she stopped praying for like two years. And for her and for us, that's a big thing like, because prayer and spiritual connection, especially for a woman who's like going to church every Sunday and going through all the motions to not be praying you know, she just didn't feel worthy. She just didn't feel like she could feel that connection. It's one thing to read about it, like in the scriptures or through a Sunday sermon or a book, or to talk about it with your friends, but to actually feel that is another thing entirely. And it was so painful for her to to feel that separation that she saw no other, you know, not just a separation from God, but from herself. And that's what I kind of mean by that soul sovereignty. It's like, this is who I am. I am loved of the heavens. I'm loved by Christ. I'm loved by God. And then finding that feminine version of however you define God, the mother, goddess, whatever, we don't know. It's a mystery, but, but claiming that for yourself and holding that sacred in your heart, no matter what's going on around you. I feel like that was the biggest thing for her that was creating so much pain and so much shame because that shame, you know, I studied quite a bit about the energy of emotion and calibrating different emotional states. And they've actually done some scientific studies that the lowest calibrated emotion, meaning the darkest place you can go in your psyche is the energy of shame and shame will take you down the highest, highest calibrated besides love is gratitude. So when you give gratitude for life, for yourself, and you cultivate that as a practice in yourself, you can literally, that light will assimilate the darkness of shame. So not very many people know how to do this. It's nice when I say it, right? It's nice when we throw it out there as an idea or we read about it. But to actually do it, to actually feel that for yourself is the practice. I believe is one of the most beautiful practices of life and going back to grace, right? She couldn't access grace. She didn't feel worthy of grace. She felt like she had to do certain things to earn that and that she wasn't doing it right. And so it just created so much hopelessness in her. And there were other things in her suicide letter that basically let us know that she just, there was, you know, this was her, this was a gesture of love. She was Doing this for love in her, in the twisted, in crazy. her mind, yeah. yeah,
1: not what God required or what anybody wanted, but this was she felt at that, that moment of hopelessness that was the best way, right? So, yeah, and I want to, you know, I've thank you so much for being so open and transparent. I know this is a very difficult conversation, but I also know it'll help people because it's going to mm-hmm. connect with people listening, struggle with it right now. You can agree or disagree with me, but what I've always seen is when people come out of something totally off balance, they usually flip to the other side and then they start coming back. You know, like they, they go from one extreme to the other until they find their balance Mm -hmm. and it takes time. It really does. Especially if you're raised in a cult, like Mormonism. I mean, I believe Mormonism is a cult personally. I
0: believe, I believe that that is a, a strong word, but I know I've done cult research and I've watched cult documentaries and I believe that it, there are aspects to Mormonism that definitely fit into a cult
1: model. Yes. yes, and I'm not saying all the people who say they're Mormons are horrible humans. What I'm saying, oh is no, they
0: about, are some of the best, most yes. loving, kindest. Yeah. yeah,
1: but what I'm saying, a cult has a top manipulation mm-hmm. that controls and. Mm-hmm uses it for their own benefit. And it's not godly. That to me is a cult. And even the U.S. government considers as screwed up as our government is, I think they still classify the Mormon church as a cult. So what I'm saying is your sister trying to get out and even you trying to get out, it's just going to be back and forth of emotions and learning and a journey. You know, we're always growing, but you're changing your whole paradigm. I mean, you're literally going from, you're being told this is the world, even the story of Adam and Eve. When you're describing the story of Adam and Eve, I don't know if you realize this but you're still describing it from a lot of a Mormon perspective. Oh no. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I
0: was describing it Let me qualify. Yeah. I I was describing the distortion of it.
1: Yes, oh, the distortion. Yeah, it's not
0: what I believe right now.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, cuz what I was saying is the way you were describing I'm like, yeah, that's not it's like that's why I always encourage people grab a bible and spend some time in it and then find people who can help you understand it and if you also not,
0: have to realize that yeah. there's so much in the bible that's open for interpretation and that's where you the spirit and soul sovereignty comes in because do you have two people that are godly people and who are lined up with the divine inside of themselves or reading the same story they're going to get two different interpretations so i think the best teachers and mentors guide other people to what do you th-? and that's what christ did What do you think? That's why he taught in parables. He wasn't literal. He taught in parables. And one thing we have to remember about the Bible, if you really go and look at the history and the you know, theological, you know, researchers and and you know experts will tell you that the Bible is, you know, was written hundreds, well, like Genesis. And the, uh, what's attributed to the writings of Moses, it's not Moses sitting down and writing it. These were oral tradition. These were oral stories, like the creation story and the story of Abraham and so forth, that were not actually written by those people. They were told and they were passed down over hundreds of years. I think the first recording uh, that we have of Genesis was, you know, hun- you know, 400 years after Moses or something like that. Same with the the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't sit down in real time during Jesus' time and write down. They dictated the stories, and there, that's why we have four different gospel accounts of, you know, the events of Christ's life. They, they, they told these stories and they told their their perspective on it. And I think the first recording that we, we don't know who authored the the New Testament, but the first recordings we have of the four gospels were, well, like a generation after Christ died. So it's important to note that all of scripture is is given to us for our own guided, God-based centered interpretation. And it will mean something different to me than it will mean to someone else you know, for instance, you know, we have the story of Adam and Eve. We, we know that, you know, there's so much richness around that. We can take that so many different ways relevant to our life station and where we're at now. Like I, I don't see Adam, you know, Eve taken out of Adam's rib, like as being less than for instance, or that when Paul said, let their, let your women keep silence in the churches. Like that was the, that was the marker of the culture of their time. And so we get to evolve with this living word and we get to open it up to more than just a literal black and white, good, bad, evil, right, wrong, because everyone is walking through their own trauma. Everyone's walking through their own life experiences and we, God trusts us he trusts each one of us to take from it what we personally need. So, I get really triggered when somebody stands up and says, this is what God meant by this. Well, that's what God meant for you to take from it. But I'm a woman in my 50s. I have six kids. I, You know, I'm going to take something away differently because I have a woman's body and I have a different life path and a different set of life experiences.
1: Yeah. When i read the bible i read it personally as a literalist okay but we have a men's group every thursday night and some guys and i get together and we study the word and i always you know joke around with them like listen anytime we come to a passage because you and I, I think could both agree you could read the same book of the bible over and over again and because it's a living book you get something different out of it all the time and but
0: but also stage realize of life. That you are a living book
1: yeah, we're changing and yeah. growing. So,
0: and- so God can, God is all powerful, and God can give you something more for you, in yeah. addition to that.
1: Yeah, not I was for the whole around. world,
0: not for you to stand up on a podium and be like, "Hey, world, this is what God told me, and here's what you should do," which is kind of what Mormonism does. They have a prophet and twelve apostles that claim to speak for God, and so. This one man, this prophet, he gets to tell everyone, you know, the final word. And I, I, that doesn't resonate for me anymore. I, yeah, I think we can all like the spirit of Jesus is, or spirit of, what is that scripture? The spirit of Jesus is the prop, is the gift of prophecy or something like that, or the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of uh, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy.
1: Yeah. And the the, another verse in a different version is you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. So once you're saved and you've trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And if you're listening, you have that inclination. And
0: And Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is within you, it doesn't come by observation.
1: Yeah. And I always joke around it's like we're on a need to know basis like you and I could read the same passage mm-hmm. and I may not be ready for three years. And when I need to know, God will show me. Right. Yeah. And then what I was saying about that men's group is we had a, just a topic and it wasn't changing anybody's salvation. It wasn't changing anything, but we read the verses differently. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, listen, th- this is truth. Either I'm right and you're wrong. You're right. And I'm wrong or we're both wrong because God's always right. I said, so we have to do what the Bible says. It says, study to show thyself approved, a workman unto God that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So what I you're saying- think that you're
0: brilliant at memorizing scripture. I would add to that, you're both right. You're not both wrong, you're both right.
1: Well, see, that's, that, yeah. I mean, I, I think- Because I believe God, God's always right. God's topic, always right. You
0: have to understand he has this different view. And I believe there's a feminine aspect to this as well. That Well, he
1: made men and women, there has to be. There has to be,
0: there has to God be a, made a, a beautiful a, man,
1: a beautiful woman, and it works mm-hmm. together. Not Like you said, you use the term, I think, hierarchical. Mm-hmm. It's not man's better than woman. I know that's what Mormon teaches. That's well, no, true. they don't. They,
0: no, they don't teach that. That's just, that's just an interpretation we have because we don't have the same. There's nothing that they're not going to stand up and say that. men are better than women. There's absolutely no way you'll hear that in Mormon theology. But there's this undercurrent think, of... Yeah, in like the that's after, a literalist like thing that own. you just that's a literalist thing you just said. So
1: But don't the men own the planets in eternity and they populate it with their wives? Men's yeah. always at the top in the Mormon religion. Yeah, so so, so that's now, what I'm saying. I heard They're- that
0: totally looks like men are better than women, right? 12 women to every yes. man, hundreds of women to every man. And that's that's the kind of dogma theology that I just rejected. And that's so, good
1: for you because it's not true. Right? So no,
0: well. There is a lot. Here's the, here's the thing. When you, when you use the word literally, like I, the Bible is literal. It's a, I don't believe that it is. I believe that it works as a living document, as you said, in a living, in each person's individual living body. So is there scripture coming out now? Yeah. Are there people speaking out the word of prophecy now? Yeah. But the problem is when, when people speak that out and it's the one size fits all for everyone, like Here's what God told me, the world's going to end or here's what God told me you need to do this. Like listen, we each get our own right as children of God to interpret or fit or bend or assimilate these teachings into our own life station. So yeah, I just I just get triggered, you know, Hearing, you know, that there's a literal interpretation of scripture, I've studied Buddhist teachings, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, some of the Hindu texts, some Sanskrit things that were circulating during the time of Christ before we ever, you know, and before the time of Christ, you know, the the Jewish Talmud. that, That, you know, there's truth from so many sources, and when we get locked in. To one way and one interpretation, then God we cut God off from giving us more, and so yeah, I I think that's the beauty is He just He and She give us permission to find truth where whatever resonates for us. Like I've done a lot of study on the Gnostic Gospels, the Apocrypha, and some of the texts that were not canonized with the rest of the. Scriptures we have with the King James Bible, and it's very fascinating. These documents weren't even uncovered until World War II in Egypt, but they have the same carbon dating, and they're from the same time as the books that the books of the Bible were being written. So, one the reason I love them is because they talk about Mary Magdalene and how she was, you know an apostle right along with the other apostles. And a lot of Christian churches don't want to hear this. They, they don't want to know that there's more scripture, that there were actually things being written that at the Council of Nicaea when all of these books were in circulation. What do we include? What do we not? And the Roman church said, we're going to keep this and we're going to burn the rest. We're going to keep this part and we're going to drive everything else out into oblivion. And that's what they did. And they a lot of these texts got buried And they didn't even come out until, you know, 1500 years later. So to say that there's not more that could complement this is to not, people just don't know their history. You know, the Nicene Creed, basically laid down by the Catholic church. This is what we're going to believe. This is the scriptures that we're going to use and end of story. And uh, for me, that's sad because a lot of the feminine beautiful aspects of the feminine pronouns and the goddess history and everything were wiped. Mary Magdalene became a prostitute. Mary Magdalene became a person who had seven demons cast out of her and all of her true discipleship and ministry was not included in the
1: canonized New Testament. So for our listeners, this is a deep conversation. Yeah, sorry, calling... I didn't know we were going to go here but no. still like Our <laughs> listeners know. Listen, we have people Part of our community, we love them. They're in Australia. We have them in Ghana. We have them in Singapore. Mm. We have them in Brazil, Canada, all over the world. For the people listening, though, your story, Sheree, started off with kind of a you know twisted perspective through the Mormon Church, and then you grew up, like you said, in poverty. And there's depression and bipolar and suicide. And yet you're emerging into this beautiful person God made you and you're growing every day. And hopefully so am I, right? So as this is happening, listeners right now from all over the world saying, okay, okay. I'm not even sure what to believe about what they're discussing about the Bible and which version is real. I think we both agree. Just read it and God will give you wisdom. But to sure. the people struggling with that depression, the people struggling with thoughts of suicide, what do you tell them now like what where do they start to get the hope? Where do they start when, to get help like how what, what have you found? I would in your say be open,
0: be open because when we get so closed and we put limits on God what he can and cannot do and we take whole cultures and civilizations like from India and in the Eastern, countries like China and you know, all this ancient wisdom, and we don't blend it with you know modern Christianity, we're not only saying we're better than them, but we're taking how God speaks to that culture and those people completely and cutting it off. And there's a lot of beauty and wisdom in those. I believe, I mean, my dream is that all cultures and peoples come together and that beliefs don't have to define us. So, you know, it's like you kind of painted a bleak picture of my life. And I and I don't want, you know, it wasn't about suicide. No, I, I want to
1: talk. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean so it that way. I'm sure you have amazing. No, no, no. Things. I know. I was it's- just saying that we're talking with us. <laughs> yeah, we were yeah, yeah. talking about the depression, the suicide. Yeah. But what formed the passion for what you're doing today. Sure. So that's where I was going with that. Yeah. And I, and that I, was I do right. I do
0: have six beautiful children, three boys and three girls. And uh, I have tried to bring them to a knowledge. I've tried to give them the confidence to be themselves and to be able to use their own inner guidance and inner wisdom and to drown out the voices of the dream killers or the naysayers and to just live from their heart. And I'm not, you know, we practice this as a family because I did raise the older kids in Mormonism and they've kind of, they kind of broke out in their own ways. You know, there's so much from the ancient sages, saints, and mystics. There's so much rich history. So I would just say to your listeners, be open to what shows up in front of you. You may not have to hunt this down much longer because what's happening on the earth right now Is there is an emergence of this beautiful mother energy or mother, you could call it feminine, divine feminine or sacred feminine in men and women. And it is coming up and it is dissolving these old structures that have a certain dogmatic way of doing things, black, white, good, bad. We're seeing it in governments. We're seeing it in schools. We're seeing it in lots of communities. We're seeing it in religions. We're now this beautiful, wise, ancient wisdom way, and you could call it the sacred feminine or whatever you want to call it, but it's emerging. And I think it's going to get kind of messy for a while. Well, we, Like you said, when the pendulum shifts and people are trying to come back to center, that's happening in the earth. It's not just happening in individuals. It's happening in family systems and it's happening in uh, a lot of our institutions, but It's happening in our bodies. And there's this wrestle, you know, for instance, with a lot of men and women too, but especially men, men haven't been taught how to access their emotional, you know, inner emotional life and express it in ways that are healthier, or they've been taught to swallow down their emotions. Just like women were taught to swallow their power, men were taught to swallow their emotions. And so we have this shift happening within each individual because we all have these aspects to ourselves. When I was younger and I knew that I wanted to create wealth when I got older, that's exactly what I did. I became a businesswoman and I've traveled all over the world and I've been able to kind of be the breadwinner for my family. And I have a beautiful husband. We've been married 25 years and we make it work. COVID has really... Brought a lot of people back inside, back within themselves, examining the ways they've been showing up in life, how they've been treating others, how they've been treating themselves. And so it's this beautiful invitation, I feel like, for people to come back and really question and examine. So that's what I mean. You know, that's how you break out of depression. That's how you break out of a rut. That's how you break out of getting stuck is to be open. Be open to what's coming to you. Be open to what's before you. Don't put a wall between you and truth, because truth comes in many, many, many forms. The Bible could be one way, a big way for many people, but also consider that there are people who have been so wounded by religion, they won't touch a Bible, and God has to reach those people too. So, when you start bringing up Jesus and God and the Bible and the way— to some people, they, you can't get through. They've, they've been wounded. They've been abused by that, by some of those systems. And so for me, I, I do a podcast also, David, every week for two years faithfully. And one of the things we talk about on my podcast is called Women Seeking Wholeness. It's about claiming your own grace. Going, Paul talks about going boldly before the throne of grace. I've kept that as my mantra to bring grace and beauty in and allow it and open myself in, in whatever person, place or thing it comes through. I'm not going to take something and put it out here because a, a Muslim said it. I'm not going to take something and put it away because a Mormon said it. There is truth and beauty in all of the or entire earth, in every culture, in every faith and belief system. And so, I think what we're going to start to see is more people stepping into their own knowing and honoring that for themselves. You could have the most beautiful person in the world, the most loving, giving Christ-like person go to their grave, having never re- read a single verse of the Bible. And that person is no better or worse off than a drug addict who, like, or someone like my sister who commits suicide. And I think when we start to create these layers of the good and, you know, horrible and bad and good and evil, and we're so literalist with that, we totally marginalize people. We totally marginalize them and outcast them the way the Pharisees and Sadducees did during Jesus' time. So for me, it's inclusivity, invitation, collaboration, and inclusion, because that's what Jesus did. You know, when did he ever cut it? He went off.
1: Yeah. Now with COVID and so much of the world being shut off, do you have any tips for ways of inclusion in this type of environment?
0: So, yeah, I have a mantra that I like. It's called stop, breathe, receive. And all that means is you're taking a grand time out and you're being like chaos, you're feeling chaotic inside, your environment's chaotic, the world is uncertain. What, what do you have control over? You have no control over political stuff. You have no control over the climate. You have no control over other people in general at all, your kids, your husband, whoever. So that grand timeout is just to stop everything and go within because that's all you got. Yeah, the Bible is outside of you. As lovely and amazing as it is, it, it's it's a book you hold and read. To access your inner wisdom, the inner God within and that Holy Spirit, however, people define it, you have to stop everything, close your eyes and breathe. And there's a lot of references in scripture to breath being, you know, there's a lot of stuff to like the living water. Christ said, you know, I'm the water and I'm the bread of life. And there's, there's bread, water, and, and, and wine, or so spirit is breath, spirit rides on the breath. And this, this is ancient yogi teachings. This is ancient, ancient Indian wisdom. It's, you know, basically when you breathe, you access your inner soul and your inner soul is directly connected to God. It's direct. There's nothing. You know, the Bible even says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. But we forget that in our head, in our literalist view, we forget. And we think we have to do all these things to be connected to God or be worthy of His love or her love. But when you stop, breathe, and I like to picture my heart as a temple, and there's a holy of holies inside of that temple, and that I can access that anytime. I don't have to be worthy. I don't have to do a bunch of stuff. Like I just picture it in my mind, David. I just picture myself like breathing into that and accessing that through grace. And so when I stop, breathe, I can receive what it is that God wants for me in that moment, not in the future or in the ancient past of the writings of dead prophets, bless them. (laughs) But now, now in my body in my feminine body and in your masculine body opening up the temple doors and saying, show me. And when you receive that, you are empowered. That's true empowerment is receiving that love, receiving that grace, owning it, cultivating it, working with it. And I was, you know, just that whole like stop, breathe, receive that, that can just retrain your brain to stop everything you're doing. And over time, You can, you don't even have to like stop and close your eyes and breathe. Over time, you become the temple. You become, because your body is a temple anyway, right? (laughs) First Corinthians. But you become over time a living temple. And people, not everyone's invited to the temple, (laughs) you know, but you can stand on holy ground wherever you go. And I believe that is a practice that you can. Spend the rest of your life trying to incorporate because it's it's not an overnight thing. I've been practicing this for a while. And for me, the challenge is to, you know, because I have a sometimes it can be chaotic at my house. We have a big loud dog, and I've got two young kids and college kids and their friends coming over, and like it can get really hmm. So the practice for me is like God's like you. We have a whole other story, David, about how I got my last two kids. They came through two separate miraculous private adoptions. They basically showed up at my door. One child came when I was almost forty-four. The next child came when I was almost forty-six. And uh, wow. so I've I've got these two. That's a life kids.
1: change. It
0: was like crazy because you know my there's twelve years between the last child I gave birth to and the the next adopted child and. So we started all oh, over. Correct. Do a quick summary. I don't want to
1: cut any of your oh, background no. or anything you feel is significant. So bring us up to that time, like where we left off, to where you're getting kids on your doorstep yeah. by the stork, right No.
0: <laughs> yeah, the stork came. No, I as I started, my husband and I, I graduated college and got my degree when I was pregnant with our first. So we started having kids. Boom, boom, boom. And then I had like four miscarriages in a row because I had a waking vision. This is a cool story. It wasn't a dream, but it was like I was actually awake and I saw a male spirit and a female spirit standing really close together. He was standing right behind her and they looked just like my biological children. And I just knew they were my children too. And so I kept trying to have them. And like I said, four miscarriages in a row and they're not here. So I just chalked it up to maybe they're my grandkids. I don't know what's going on. And I, I actually went into a wilderness of a faith crisis because I was, I felt like God like dangled a carrot and then just didn't, it never showed up. So I thought it was crazy. And this is maybe your listeners can relate to this. You think your life is going, or you think like you get an answer to a prayer and you're so again, so literal with it that you, it doesn't happen the way you literally think it should. And so you start to doubt and you start to go into fear and maybe like second guessing and things like that. So I was in Japan.
1: And how old were you at this point too?
0: So the last miscarriage I had, I was 42. Okay. And I, I had my grant. So right before I was supposed to go on this business trip to Japan. And right before I left, I went to go see my grandfather and I knew that he was kind of, on his last dying days. And my grandfather, you have to understand, this man was the closest thing to perfect that most people who ever met him ever knew. He had no guile in him. He was, he was a leader in the Mormon church actually, but not, not in an ego way or anything. Like he was so giving and loving and Christ-like and he was so healthy in his spirituality. But he too had been programmed a lot with some ideas, but he, as a person, as a man, he was so, so Christ-like and everyone loved this man. He, he left quite a legacy, but I went to go see him before I left for Japan. And this was right after the last miscarriage. And I went into my grandma, they lived in a resting home and my grandma was in, as I walked in, my grandma was like, Oh honey, he's in the other room. I go in the other room and I start talking to him and he's not responding. And it turned out he had passed away. So I was the first one of his 30 some grandkids to discover he had passed away. And that was really, really hard for me. It's my mom's dad. Like my mom is a saint. So were her parents. So I go to Japan, I, the funeral, everything. And then I go to Japan and, and this is how I say God could work through people of all different faiths and whatever. I didn't speak a word of Japanese. I had an interpreter with me. And we were in the, this apartment with these women who they, t- they, they were healers. And one of the women said to my translator, she said, I have a message for Cherie. Can you ask her if it's okay if I give it? And she asked me and I said, okay, sure. And the message was there's an, there's an older man. Here And he has a male and a female spirit with him. So I knew she was talking about my grandfather and I knew she was talking about these two children I had seen in vision. And she's like, he's just here to tell you that they're coming. And I was actually upset by that because I had tried so hard to bring them. And I was tired of, again, God dangling the carrot (laughs) and not giving me these children but that very very night i had a sacred dream in my J- hotel in japan and and basically i i saw i was with a group of people and again these things are symbolic we can't always take dreams literally but i was it was like i was in heaven but i it was like i was on earth but everyone was dressed in white and i was talking to a group of people and they kept looking down at my side and smiling and so i looked down and here is the this- Beautiful young girl with big blue eyes and dark hair. And she was just looking up at me. And there was just so much love between us. And then I woke up and I was like, who was that? I get home from Japan. I write the dream down. I get home from Japan. I'm at the grocery store. And this is like three days after I got home. And And did
1: you tell your husband about the dream or did you keep it private? No, I didn't tell anybody. Okay.
0: I was just processing it. My husband already was like on this whole journey of like, where are these kids going to come from? But then I just gave up on it. And I swear to you, this is what happens. When you stop focusing on it and trying to control it and you just surrender it to God, that's when the miracle really takes form. So this is what happens. So I'm in the grocery store. I get this text now this is from a girl named Jessica that I had, I am a life coach by trade. She was one of my, had been one of my life coaching clients. And she said, Sheree, I don't, I don't know who to tell. I just took a pregnancy test and it's positive. You're the first person that I've told. I haven't told anybody. And I am not kidding you. I had spirit and chills through my entire body. I knew that she was carrying Eli. The child that I had seen in the dream, because I recognized the dream I had in Japan was her because she has long dark hair and big blue eyes. And she's, and we have this beautiful, like big sister, little sister connection. At that very same time, my husband was at a convention and Jessica showed up with her mother there at the convention while I was in Japan. And my husband felt moved upon by the spirit to buy her this book So my husband, not knowing how to have this dream, my husband buys her the book and gives it to her. And because my husband had done that, that's one of the reasons she thought to tell me that she was pregnant. And she, the first thing she said is I cannot keep this baby. It is not healthy with the birth father. I'm not ready to be a parent right now. And this is a woman who's in her mid twenties. I don't know what to do. So I didn't put it together. Like logically, I just wanted to help her, but fast forward, she ended up moving into our home. She lived in Vegas at the time. She came to our home here in Utah. We put her up. And even right before she came out, I'd written this poem called the two who are missing. And it was on my blog. And I had her read it. I said, I know I have these two kids coming. And she read the poem. And within a couple of days, she knew that the child that she was carrying was our child. So she had, she took my husband and I out to lunch. And said, I can't think of two people I'd like to adopt this child more than you. She didn't know if it was a boy or a girl yet. And so we brought her into our home. She lived with us through most of her pregnancy. I found out it was a boy. I knew it was Elijah, my son. I had named him many years ago. And you should see this kid. (laughs) He is a warrior of God. His birth father looks like the Hulk and his birth mother, Jessica. She looked basically, they're both professional bodybuilders. She looks like Wonder Woman. He looks like Hulk. So this is a kid we couldn't produce biologically. Um, (laughs) That's how we got him. And I actually was there for the birth, cut the cord, all of that, like from the beginning. Now, man, you get
1: the best of both worlds. You didn't have to deliver and you get to be there.
0: I know, but you know what? (laughs) I had, it was such an emotional roller coaster that I, I kind of feel like I did, but you're right. I didn't have to physically give birth to him. It would have killed me. When he came, I was like, well, he has a sister. So how's she going to show up? And I had faith. I did have faith that she was going to come. I knew it. It was beyond faith. It was, I know she's coming. And I knew she'd have blonde hair. Cause that's what I saw in, in this vision. And by the way, my son, Eli has those, he, that was one thing that I, when I had the vision that I could see both of these children have blue eyes. That's why I thought they were my kids, bio kids, my bio kids all have blue eyes. My husband and I have blue eyes, but he, and I knew he was a strong soul, like, you know, that warrior. Cause he was standing behind her and was like, you know, and that's definitely his body and how he moves in life. He's, he's a, he's a big, strong boy. His hands are almost, he's uh, eight years old and his hands are almost the size of mine. So he's, he's, yeah, he's got a physical presence and he is a fiery temper Scorpio kid. So when he came, I was like, what do we do now? And I, in my mind, I'm trying to control it again. Maybe I should get a surrogate maybe. So we actually went and met with at a surrogacy center to see about getting a surrogate, but it just didn't feel right. And so basically when Eli was about a year old, I get, I was taking, so let's see, my daughter would have been a 15, my 15 year old daughter and I were out to dinner and I get this Facebook message from this girl. I didn't know. And she said, okay, you're going to think I'm crazy. I had written about my son, Eli, and his whole miraculous private adoption on my blog. And she said, you're friends with my mom. And I have a friend. She goes, this is how I know about you because you're friends with my mom. She's like, I have a friend who's pregnant. And I, she asked me to adopt her baby. And I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. But as I've tried to move forward with trying to adopt this baby, it just hasn't felt right. And she said, so my, so I have this dream and in the dream, I'm in the room and I'm seeing my friend give birth to a baby and they wrap the baby in pink blanket and and the nurse hands her to a woman with um, long brown hair. And she said, I've had this dream two nights in a row. She's like, I don't believe in, I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know. I'm not a spiritual person, but I cannot deny there's something going on here. She said, so I was talking to my mom about this dream. And my mom told me that you had just adopted a baby. Maybe I could help her and, or I could help you. So she's like, I went to your blog and you are the woman that was in my dream. You are the woman that they wrapped this baby in a pink blanket and gave her to the woman. And it's you. So I'm reading this in the restaurant. You know, Eli's just a year old, just barely turned a year old. I'm reading this. And I had, again, same thing happened when I was was in the grocery store. Spirit and chills through my whole body. And I knew, she goes, my friend that's pregnant right now doesn't know if it's a boy or girl, but I'm just going to say to you, like this happened. So that's how we got my daughter. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's incredible.
0: But there's a whole so, story with it. She went into foster care and I had to get six court hearings to get custody of her. She was abused as a three-week-old. I was there through most of the pregnancy. It was a pretty precarious situation, but God prevailed over the state of California to let me adopt her in Utah. And I got, cus- I got foster custody of her when she was four months old. And we adopted her when she was just under a year. So she is now six years old and Eli is now eight and she does have blonde hair and blue eyes and she's full of joy. So Eli and Emma are my, I I will always say to my dying breath, these two children are a manifestation of the hand of God in my life. They came by nothing short of miraculous, everything from the dreams to the way we got them to how it all played out, yeah.
1: That's so wonderful. Well, let's do this. We covered a lot of ground. And I <laughs> I'm don't a complicated want...
0: person. I have a lot of stuff to say.
1: <laughs> no, this is beautiful. I mean, that's why it's so hard to title these episodes because we cover so much ground. One of the main things that you like to focus on in your work is why strong people often feel empty and disconnected inside. Yeah. So before we answer that question, going back to your history and your story, what really made Cherie, Cherie today, is there anything else that we need to talk about that, you know, you're like, you know, this is something I really had to face and I think it'll help the listener and this is how I overcame it.
0: Yeah, I wasn't going to bring it up, but the Spirit just told me to. So I served as a missionary for the Mormon church when I was 22, 22 to 23 years old. And all the stereotypes you see, you know, with the Mormon missionaries, with it's usually the elders you see, the young boys, you know, with the tags. But I did that because I wanted to serve Christ and I didn't care necessarily about baptizing people into the Mormon church. I just wanted to go serve God. So I had a very beautiful experience. I went to Texas and I made some great connections with people and learned the Bible like right Cause I, you know, it's the Bible belt out there and I had to know my stuff. So that's why a lot of those scriptures that, you know, are in my head too, cause I really dove in to understand the, the scriptures. I came home and I went to BYU, which is Brigham Young University, which is a church owned private university. It's actually a really good school, but I decided to take some time off from my major and I went and to rethink my major Because at that time I was studying family science and I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to become a family therapist. So I decided to just get a general psych degree, but I took some time off work or off school and I worked at a boys ranch, like a behavioral facility for teen boys. And I was a living counselor. I was one of the first female living counselors they ever had. And while there, I met a guy who was actually my supervisor who had been divorced and about four years older than I, and we started dating Long story short, I ended up getting pregnant, and he couldn't handle it. And I didn't want to marry him anyway. And we were already going to break up. And it was this whole shaming thing, and that's why I'm bringing it up because I was because I was a returned missionary, and because I had made covenants in the temple. So in Mormonism, you you go to the the temple, and everybody probably knows there's a secret ceremony there. It's got a lot of Masonic roots like I didn't know about. There's a lot of interesting aspects to it that were sacred, but yet now that I look back, some of it wasn't so healthy or clear. But when you make those covenants in the temple, it's serious. And if you break them, you pay the price. So I had actually to go... And define
1: that, define paying the price, because some people have no idea what you're talking about.
0: Well... It's cloaked in spiritual love and guidance by your priesthood leaders, but it's actually quite shaming. So you have to kind of go confess to your bishop, and then he decides what happens from there. And in my case, because I had been a missionary, because I had been through the temple, it was more serious. Even though I had, I was very repentant. I was literally pouring my heart out to god in my bedroom and everywhere like please forgive me like you know cuz mormonism considers breaking the law of chastity next to murder so it's it's super serious and even though i felt like a chaste person i had a good heart i was i wasn't promiscuous at all i just happened to get into a really bad relationship with this guy and He ended up taking off and kind of abandoning me. And he's kind of skated off with kind of no accountability to the church or anybody else. And so here I was, I was actually 24. I was pregnant and I'm going through this repentance process. Well, my bishop decided I needed to go through a disciplinary, what they call a disciplinary council or a church court, where you stand before a group of men who didn't know me at all and i had they had to decide if I was worthy enough to get keep my membership in the church, basically, so your membership in the church is kind of like you're standing with God. Sometimes you conflate those two like you know, which is really unhealthy now that I look at it, but like a council of men gets to decide if I'm worthy to participate in this church and in these ordinances and and I just remember. I don't remember a lot of what I said, but I know I had to just recount some really personal private things. that should have been between me and God. But I remember they said, okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna pray about this. You go out in the hall. We'll come back when we're ready for you. And I remember when I was kind of in the foyer area waiting for their verdict, because the verdict would have been on probation, what they call probation, which is, means you can't take the sacrament and you can't kind of like, not fully ostracized, but like you can't particip- fully participate. Or disfellowshipment, which means it's a step above that. Like you can't pray in public. You can't participate in like the admin, Like you can't have a church capacity or calling. Or ex- It's almost
1: like the scar- scarlet letter yeah, to a way.
0: That, that's it. But then the third thing is excommunication, which means they take away everything. Like you, I would have to have have gone and gotten re-baptized like I did when I was eight years old. And they take away all of your temple privileges, all of your everything. Like you can basically not do anything except come to church if you choose. And so I was just praying in that foyer that I was not going to get excommunicated because it was shaming enough to go before this council of men who don't know me but to have to get re-baptized, because at that time I was fully believing in the church and fully in it and fully like Joseph Smith's a prophet. All this stuff is totally true. I'm God's you know, chosen. I'm forfeiting my eternity before God, like my eternal blessings. And I was just praying because I didn't want to have to go through a re-baptism. That would have been super shaming, right? And here I am pregnant, alone, abandoned by the Father. My parents live states away I have very little support. I was in college and I was already feeling like this high and shaming myself. So I was just praying and praying and praying. So I get back in the room. They said, we're ready for you. I get back in the room and they said, um, we prayed about it. And basically I got disfellowshipped. So I, I didn't quite get excommunicated. Part of it was my bishop had been counseling me to place the baby for adoption because the church has this handbook that they use for administrative purposes. And at that time they had an adoption agency, LDS family services, LDS adoption agency, and they were kind of looking for babies. I look back on this now and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like they had a deficit of babies to parents that were waiting and it's a church owned adoption agency. So also they believe in Mormonism that there's this thing called being born in the covenant. So if two, if a man and woman are married, and they're married in the temple, they're married in in the covenant and any children that they have are born in that covenant. So I was born in the covenant that my parents, but because I was a single mother and because the guy took off this, that whatever child I had would not be born in the covenant. So the church handbook detailed any, any, you know, if the parents don't have plans to marry the, the mother should make an adopt, basically make an adoption
1: plan. And again, forgetting. for our listeners, Cherie's telling her story based on the Mormon church. We, neither one of us agree with this. She's just stating right. the facts of what just happened in her facts. life. We're not saying yeah. this is biblical or scripture or what you should do. This is, this is her story of what happened.
0: I'm telling you what was in and still is in the handbook. So I was kind of pressured to place this baby for adoption. And I think if I, I think that scored me some points with this council of men, that I was being obedient to the council, the general council of, or the handbook, because I would have done anything, including giving up my firstborn to be right with God. And that to me at that time meant obeying this, these church policies. So I got disfellowshipped, which was very shaming, but I kept it under wraps and I walked through life as a going to church. I fully intending, like just to not not participate. As a pregnant girl, I ended up placing her for adoption, which was gut wrenching and soul killing and crushing, and so much grief. So, the nice thing about the story is that, like you said, well. I wore the scarlet letter. Now that could, I wore it because I perceived myself as a sinner and that, that would always stain me that this experience would always like, if people only knew about this about me. Right. And there was all that shame and secrecy around it for me personally, but I took that scarlet letter off because I have this beautiful daughter and I am in her life and she's a mother now. She's the same age, pretty much the same age that I was when I had her. And it's been an open adoption this whole time, but we've really gotten close the last couple of years since she's become a mom. And um, I'm actually really, really grateful that I had that super shaming experience and just that whole sacrificing my firstborn because it taught me to have empathy for people who, ah, like, well, for one thing, it's just not right to cast people out. It's just not. There's nowhere in scripture where Jesus excommunicated anyone. If anything, the sinners were at his feet and he was proclaiming like against, you know, when the woman that was taken adultery, they threw her in the ring and what would you do with her, Jesus? What did he do? He was like, well, wh- whoever's first without sin cast the first stone. So I've been that woman. I know what that feels like. And for people to make literal statements or try to take away my standing before God, like, it's just not right.
1: Yeah. The it's only people right. who Jesus got mad at was the people, the scribes and Pharisees used religion to manipulate and they yes. sinned against God. And those he called snakes and vipers and tore yeah. up the temple. So yeah, you're, Jesus loves, it says, for God so love the world. And Jesus came for the sinners, not, right. you know, saints don't need to be saved. He came through the sinners. That's all of us, right?
0: Well, that's all of us. And the other part of it is He showed us our divinity, not just our sinner <laughs> He showed us that we are all one with God at one, atonement at one So for me to think that I could ever have a council of men or anyone tell me that I was not worthy, it's just not right. Like I look back, you know, those years ago and I'm like, that wasn't right. Like, why did I ever believe that? Why did I ever think that someone would have that kind of control or um, dominion over my own salvation? Jesus said he employs no servant at the gate. It's us and him. And the people that want to stand at the gate as the gatekeepers of salvation don't understand the, the law. They don't understand that that's not the way it rolls. Jesus looks at hearts and he looks at the purity of your heart and your intention. And I actually had a really sacred experience when I had her. I had a C-section and the morning that I was to sign those papers where the adoption agency came in and my mom was right there. And given I'm 25 years old when I had her, it wasn't like I was 15. I I knew what I was doing and I had researched and studied and chosen a family and was very, very much, my heart was drawn out to God. My heart was with Christ. And uh, I, re- I had an experience when I was signing the papers that I felt his presence. I felt Jesus there. I saw him in my mind's eye, my perception of what he would look like, and that he met me there. And it was, I, I know I made the right decision, but there was so much dysfunction around it and so much shaming and So many years that I did wear that scarlet letter, that when we're talking about depression, kind of how we, that's kind of been the central focus of our discussion. My depression was soul level. It was like, when people feel separate from God, and I'm not saying think separate, but feel separate, they will experience a soul depression. They will suffer in spirit. And the good news of the gospel, because that's what gospel means, right? The good news is there's grace. Jesus paid whatever price, right? There's nothing more to be paid. And in Mormonism, we keep paying and paying and paying and paying. We become saviors, not realizing that we're trying to save ourselves. And we don't need to do that. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you're worthy because you breathe, because you are His and hers, whoever she, <laughs> wherever she's at. I just believe that so strongly now. And I, I believe that depression can be cured when it, if you start at the level of soul first and experience that oneness with God. However, you need to do that. If you're a Hindu, you go, you go do that. If you're a Christian, you go do that. If you're a mystic, you go do that. If you're whatever you are, whatever speaks to your soul and your culture and your body, go do that. For me, it's been studying the Christian mystics. These women who during like the middle ages and dark ages who were told by the ruling church, the ruling empire, which was them saying that this is we are speaking for God. Like they forbade if you if you had a biblical text, if you had any kind of scripture and you read it, you would be burned. Because they believed that only the priestly class was allowed to do that. And that happened for hundreds of years. So people were literally killed for trying to read scripture on their own. But these feminine mystics, they lived in these monasteries and they like Hildegard of Bingen and Julian of Norwich, these beautiful women who put that priestly class right here and said, no, and they, they honored that because they had to, or they'd be burned. But in their secret chambers, they were writing these beautiful things and experiencing this unity with the divine. And they were very devoted Christians but because of the circumstances of their time, they were not openly allowed to share. So we found that, you know, we the the world found these documents when they could come forward and be read. So there's some beautiful stuff that were that was written about it doesn't matter what's happening out here. It doesn't matter what these ruling leaders are saying. I have this connection in myself to the beloved, to God, to Christ. And And so that's where I get filled up. I love to read stuff like that. I love to go back and read that history and what they actually wrote because it's happening today. Maybe not as pronounced, but there are still a lot of things that priesthood leaders and religious hierarchy in many faith traditions, not just Mormonism, are claiming that they have this sole privilege to get information that you and I don't. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even originally when they translated the Bible for the common person, they called it the Latin vulgate, meaning it's vulgar, like it shouldn't be to the common people. It should only be to the priests and the elitists. Yeah. And that's just not right. It's still it's happening.
0: God, it's still yeah, happening. But God people are paying pastors, everyone, mega churches, like it, it's happening all over. So I'm really passionate about that. And I speak quite a bit about it on my podcast. Because not, people just don't know the history. Like people just don't know that, that history is repeating itself. And there's this gentle, beautiful uprising happening. More of a lateral approach instead of a top-down approach. It's like, let's all be one. Let's all be together in this. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you don't believe. Let's just be one. Let's love each other. And that's what Jesus was trying to teach. And he got killed for it.
1: Yeah, the only truly man without sin that loved everyone, the Son of God, and we killed him on the cross. So it's it's tragic, but on a good note, what you're saying is God loves us all. He's here for us all. And we all have that direct connection to Him. We don't need a church or any kind no. of institution to go through. Yeah. No. So, Sheree, where are you today? Where are you today? You've helped and spoke to us for the last couple hours. Where are you today and where are you you going? So we as the listeners can help.
0: Yeah. (sighs) I am for love. So love comes in many forms. When when Jesus, uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The deeper, if you climb under that, what he was saying also is, He embodied the way, and we can too. And the way is love. You know, to reference another biblical scripture, I think it was in Paul, where Paul was talking about this, maybe also in Corinthians, where he said, if you have charity, you're nothing. You could prophesy, you could move mountains, you could feed the poor, you could whatever.
1: Without charity, you're not. Yeah, without charity. Without charity, you
0: are nothing. We are nothing because we are love in our divine, sacred temple. We are that. We just forgot it. So Yeah, and I for the right?
1: listeners, oh, I'm sorry, just for the listeners no, to define charity. I I simplify charity as love and action. Is that how you mm. define it too?
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, love so and what action. Paul's,
1: yeah, what what the Bible saying in those passages is, if you don't have love, all the acts that we're doing it can still benefit, but within ourselves there's an emptiness. It's a hollowness. Yeah. It's there's no reward. Now, right. granted, someone else may be able to eat for the day. But it's the heart's missing. So that's what it's saying. Be sincere. And like Jesus said, what are the greatest commandments? Love God, love others as yourself, and on everything else, these hang, commandments.
0: Hang everything on the law and the prophets on that.
1: Yep, yep exactly. I so miss that's where I'm at.
0: I, I want to be a master teacher of love. And that means teaching people about how to go within, like Jesus taught, to find the kingdom of heaven within you. And then all of those other outer manifestations are secondary to that. Because if you, don't, if you don't know how to stop, breathe, and receive love, the love of God, the divine in you, then you just try to go out and help other people and see how it lands. Because it won't, it will fall flat. So I have, I have a program for women that teaches them how to do that it's called the stand, speak, shine school. And I teach a lot of the stuff that the feminine mystics were teaching these saints and sages and mystics throughout time. And I love, I also do a podcast and I just love to talk about these deeper concepts, just looking under what's been literal and structured for millennia and go underneath that and find the wisdom teaching. And I believe that that's I believe Jesus was taught. we have a whole record of Jesus's life missing from age twelve to the start of his ministry. What was he doing in those twenty some years, right? I believe that he was learning many, many things from many, many traditions, including the wisdom teachings of these in India and ancient Europe and things like that. there's many there's a fascinating stuff that you can dive into history with that because a lot of the things he taught, we're about going inside, which is the wisdom way. It is the way. It's how you access love. So, yeah, I'm I'm actually writing a book about my experiences and learnings about Mary Magdalene. I've traveled extensively and met with amazing people who've studied these Gnostic texts and the Gospel of Mary being one of them. And I've had my own sacred pilgrimage with that, and things I've learned directly from the spirit. So I, yeah, that's what I'm up to now, and I, I'm still raising my family. So there's that. And it just takes uh, yeah. a
1: small part of your day, though, right? Raising yeah,
0: kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> just, that's I do total have sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. It's just a just a little, but I love to gather like-minded people who are on this path of higher learning and higher teaching and wisdom teaching and going within and to kind of balance that mass healthy, masculine, healthy feminine within yourself, the yin and the yang, you know, there's so much, even Jesus talked about a lot of these things about there's, you know, accessing your, there's your solid self and your spirit self, and it's how you integrate and it's how you merge with that in yourself. And so it's a fascinating stuff. I I'm really into depth psychology. I was actually considering getting my PhD in depth psychology with a Jungian archetypal studies emphasis. I'm still on the path of possibly doing that. I just love to learn and and I'm also going through a personal journey to heal my own trauma and you know they say the first uh, my belief is that the first half of your life as a woman is birthing others and men too, birthing ideas, birthing, helping others. And the second half of your life is about birthing yourself, your true self, your God self, the the you that you were created to be. So I just love giving people permission to be themselves, to be authentically you. And so that's also what I'm doing for myself and finding more of who I am in that process, because I'm not finished yet. I've only lived half my life as far as I'm concerned. I live to be 104. I've only lived half my life.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're not finished. If we were finished, God take us home. So, we're not. Yeah. If we're breathing, he has a purpose. Now, what if a listener wants to get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to reach you?
0: So, my website is just shariburton.com. And, and we'll put
1: all is- this in the show notes. We'll put yeah. links to your podcast and your blog and your best, everything in the show notes. Yeah,
0: thank you. Yeah. So, also, you can go to StandSpeakShine.com. I have a freebie there. StandSpeakShine is the name of my, my business, you could say. It's uh, my school that I take people through. So, StandSpeakShine.com or ShreeBurton.com. Also, my podcast is Women Seeking Wholeness. And I have a, f- a private Facebook group that you can ask to join Women Seeking Wholeness on Facebook. And yeah, so I I pop in there and we do, we talk, we do regular teachings. I have all my podcast episodes on there. So yeah, that's how you can find me. I'm also on Instagram, sheree.burton.
1: Awesome. And then we'll get that again, links in the show notes, just check it out. And then sheree, it's been a true pleasure. I mean, I've sincerely enjoyed it. I know our listeners have too. Is there anything else that you feel led to share? Or, you know, we, mm-hmm. we did touch on that why strong people often, often feel empty and discontent. Is yeah. that something? Let's close with that. Because I mean, I know, okay. yeah, like close. you mentioned something earlier on. How did, I'm trying to think how you phrased it. And I thought, I've struggled with that my whole life. Mm-hmm. Like, I forget what you said or how you said it, but a disconnect, a yeah. loneliness. Well, here's the thing I've always struggled with that. How so when you wrote in your notes why, you know, strong, successful, whatever words you want to use, why mm-hmm. people that you wouldn't expect feel empty and disconnect. Yeah. What do you think the cause is and how can they start emerging from it?
0: I'm just gonna breathe into that for a moment.
1: We're yeah, all it's not homesick. Like it's a little bit of loaded question, right? <laughs> no,
0: it's I just I want to give the most enlightened answer I can. We're all homesick. It doesn't matter how ascended you are, how spiritual you are, or how much your heart feels after things of the light, you feel homesick. This is not our home and we know it on the soul level. So I, I, I am of the belief that we came to this earth to learn to live in this disconnected state because it teaches us how to be strong and powerful and loving, being separated from, or seemingly separated from God. So, with our five senses, we can't literally see God. We can't see Jesus or angels or our ancestors who are there supporting us. We can't see it. So, we have to go within to access this in ourselves and then ask. Don't be afraid to ask. People are afraid of healing and that's why people aren't getting healed. Just like we've been given all this dogma about who we are and we're not worthy and whatever, we've also been given this whole dogma about what it means to be healed and whole. What if we what if we raise children in Sunday school, let's just say, you're not broken, a broken sinner and you know, you need to be reconciled to God. There's a little bit of a twist to that because a child believes they're not whole. What if we told children, you are perfect as you are? You are God's creation, and you just have to remember your wholeness. I had to do a lot of unteaching with what my kids learned at church, not just in the Mormon tradition, but what they're seeing online. What if we, that's why depression and anxiety is at fever pitch with our adolescents and young adults. Because they, yeah, I just not- spoke to
1: a counselor and he said his practice and everybody knows that three hundred percent capacity he can't keep up. Because I'm telling you, COVID just forced people to face life,
0: right? And this isolation and and this is exactly what I'm talking about. We are operating under this illusion that we're separate, we're isolated. No one's feeling like we are, and so it's causing this withdrawal, and that's a precursor. That's a big sign of depression is withdrawal. But I see it as we're about to have a big, massive wake up, awakening with humanity. We have to. Things have to fall apart before they get built back up. And we're seeing it happen. We're seeing it play before our eyes. You could call it the fulfillment of prophecy. You could call it a lot of things. But Jesus can't come back to a bunch of sick and depressed people And I believe too, that when, that there's so much, you know, if you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, you're not waiting for Jesus to come back. And it is what it is. I believe that there is a Christ consciousness or the light of Christ, whatever you want to call it, that comes to you as a second coming. You've already been separated from the light. You came to earth. You're experiencing the separation. You can experience a second coming or coming back home first inside of yourself. Before that this happens en masse. And uh, I personally no longer believe that, and I don't mean to offend anyone by saying this, but I'm less focused on the second coming of Christ, and I'm more focused on spreading love and awareness because we don't know what that means. We don't there could be a literalist interpretation of the second coming of Christ. But I see it as a mass awakening. A lot of people coming back to that light and realizing that they are responsible to connect within, that we don't need an outside source to bring us to God. We have to find it in here. And otherwise, you know, that burning, it's not like God's going to lift a bunch of people up and burn the rest. I don't believe that anymore. I used to. That's, that's not the kind of God I would worship that would take a lot of ignorant people and just wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> I believe that there's going to be an awakening of humanity where everyone is going to be experiencing this consciousness of love that Jesus taught about. And that the only thing that, that they could do to be destroyed would be to not want it. It wouldn't be God killing them. So, natural consequences follow. It's not God killing people, but it's a natural consequence of the choices that we make. So, I would just leave your listeners with the hope that there's nothing wrong with you. You are whole already. Just have to lift all the veils of illusion and fear and disbelief and come back home to yourself. And if the Bible doesn't do it for you and Christianity doesn't do it for you and whatever, find something that does, Because God will meet you where you're at. And uh, it's a beautiful, sacred process for you to, and an adventure to go on. And that's why you're on earth is to have that grand adventure to find yourself and come back home within you and find that. So that's just my (laughs) parting, whatever.
1: No, I think, I mean, I think the, again, there's so many listeners and, you know, you and I may not interpret what's going to happen or see eye to eye exactly. But I think we can agree there is a God and he loves us and he has a purpose for us. And when you were talking, I kept thinking about that verse, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill Mm -hmm. it. You shouldn't be worried about a date or time. God tells us not to because nobody can know, but we are to every day to love God, love others, and fulfill his purpose for our life. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is you're trying to love people and you're trying to follow God and you're doing what Mm -hmm. you're told to do and we all need to do what we're told to do. So I think that part lines straight up with everything I understand about the Bible.
0: Great. It's perfect. Uh, So,
1: well, Cherie, thank you so much for being here today. You truly are a remarkable woman. It's been a pleasure and an honor. If any of our guests have questions, Check out the show notes and then one more thing. Hang around at the end. Cherie's got a special offer for you. So check it out. We're gonna say goodbye. You'll hear a little whoop, and then Sheree will tell you what a special offer she has for you. Have a great day. We love you, and we'll see you next week. Bye. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this Mm -hmm. episode. I got a ton out of it. I hope you did too, as the listener. Like Cherie was saying, if you have anything or any questions reach out to her check out the show notes we'll put her contact info in there but also Sheree you have a special offer for our listeners tell us about it
0: well thank you David for having me i just absolutely loved our our time together and our discussion and i can feel the hearts of your listeners as woo woo as that sounds um so i'm grateful to have this connection to them so yeah what i have is i have a you can go to standspeakshine.com and grab my free multisensory healing kit. Now, what do I mean by multisensory healing kit? Well, you have your five senses that God gave you. Sight, taste, touch, sound, and I'm missing one (laughs) smell. So basically those are your portals to feel good. I've done a ton of research about depression and I've gone from a traditional psych background to more of a holistic science and spirit. You know, marriage of those two. And in my research, when you nourish your senses, you lift veils in you, in your being, veils of fear and illusion and distortion and all of those things. So as you get more conscious and proactive about nurturing your senses, you start to feel better and you start to come alive and all the stuff I was talking about, about the temple within you, the kingdom of God in you, it all becomes more alive in you. So, but you got to get rid of all of the residue and the muck and all the blocks. So I have this free, it's kind of a lookbook, but it's a free kit that just takes you through the five senses and just some ideas of what you can do, including my stop, breathe, receive mantra that I talked about in the interview that can help you really connect And really get with it. So it's just a fun, free PDF that you can download. It's real pretty. It's like a lookbook. And it's not just for women, even though it's very feminine. I'm going to warn the men. It's very feminine, but men can definitely benefit from it as well.
1: Awesome. Well, for our listeners, check it out. I'm probably going to check it out. Cherie, we love you. Thank you for being here. It's been amazing. You truly are are remarkable. And hopefully we'll talk again soon.
0: Thank you so much, David. You're remarkable as well. And I honor your work.
1: Oh, well, thank you. And to our listeners, we love you. Keep listening. Keep sharing it. And like our slogan says, don't just listen to this podcast or any other podcast. Do the good things. Repeat them daily so you can have a great life. This is David Pasquale with the Remarkable People Podcast. Catch you next week. Ciao. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. remarkable people podcast listen do repeat for life